Praise God, we have a strong Christ who is stronger than even the most terrifying of sins and Satan himself. I invite you to turn with me now to 1 Peter. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 1 today. And in keeping in tradition with Evergreen, let's stand together as I read the Word of God. Let's stand together now. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together as we remain standing. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would be with us. We pray, God, that your spirit would move according to your power and according to your will, along with your word. We pray, God, that you would take this word and implant it in our hearts so that we would delight in you, that we would persevere in you, and that we would not sin against you. In your name we pray, amen. Please be seated. A challenge that we have when you teach for Sunday school and sermon you get the wrong manuscript. Mel, can you bring my bag up here, please? (laughs) The new guy. Thank you. Let me read to you guys a letter. Last night, at 12.58 a.m., three unidentified men on a motorcycle went behind our building, avoiding our security cameras, and lobbed two hand grenades at our church and living quarters. We woke up to loud explosions, flashes of light, breaking windows and walls. Within 15 minutes, the police arrived and discovered that one of the hand grenades was still live. Thankfully, none of our brothers were on the roof where the grenades landed. The police gathered whatever evidence they could and said if someone had been in the proximity of the blast, it would have been fatal. Several senior police officers have come and are assuring us of security. Of course, God is sovereign, and he himself is our true security. We think the men who did this were very angry at the gospel work going on and are trying to scare us in order that we might cease doing what we are doing. 
Of course, we will not cease doing what we are doing by God's grace. The Lord is at work in our church and the gospel is going out. Last week we had eight baptisms and all of those baptized had previously rejected Jesus as the eternal son of God. Please pray that the Lord would be glorified through all this. We appreciate your prayers. My friend in northern India sent this letter the day after the, the attacks. And even though the events here took place a handful of years ago, to read it again is nevertheless frightening as we imagine being in their situation. But it's also encouraging. What, you, we read this and we think, what faith and what hope in Christ, what faithfulness in continuing to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder how your faith would fare, how it would hold up in such challenges against you and against this Christ that you claim to love. In the midst of such suffering for faith, or even if we broaden it in general, just think about suffering in general, how is it that Christians can keep hope, keep faith, and faithfulness to Jesus Christ? Our passage this morning gives us the answer, and the answer is, if you're taking notes, it is by hoping in God who keeps us. Main idea from today's passage, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to take notes too. How is it that we keep hope alive? It is by hoping in God who keeps us. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 5. This letter was written by Peter the Apostle, and he's writing in the early 60s AD to Christians in modern-day Turkey. You can read those the line of cities there. It's generally speaking the line in which someone, you know, if Peter the Apostle is giving a messenger the letter to bring around. This is the circle in which, in general, that they would bring and the cities in which they would visit. These Christians were experiencing persecution. Now we know, insofar as history goes, widespread sort of national state-sponsored persecution hadn't yet erupted, but it's going to in just a few years underneath the emperor Nero. But nevertheless, these Christians were suffering just as so, just as so many Christians had suffered as it is the normal experience in general throughout time. It is that experience in which we receive. It's into this suffering that Peter writes here, seeking to do what? He, he seeks to renew their hope in Christ, encouraging faithfulness to Christ. So are you in the midst of affliction, whether for your faith? And then again, as we back up in general for, in general, suffering, as we live in this sinful and broken world. I pray that this passage today would secure us in the Heavenly Father's arms, knowing that He, friends, is with you and He is keeping you. Church, that is the good news because He is all we need and He is all there is at the end of the day. From our passage this morning, we look at four reasons for why we can and why, in fact, we should hope in God even in the midst of suffering. Four reasons for why we can and should hope in God even in the midst of suffering. Again, the main idea from our passage this morning, we look at four reasons why we can and should hope in God in the midst of suffering. Reason number one, we just jump right into it. There is no hope outside of God. There is no hope outside of God. Christian hope is based entirely on God himself. Entirely. Not on ourselves or our temporal circumstances. 
Maybe the most common misunderstanding about Christian faith and hope, a misunderstanding that I myself have had, is the thought that Christian hope finally rests on ourselves. As if eternal, our eternal well-being depends on the power of positive thinking, which was all the rage in the 1970s. If you're, just ha- if you're having a hard time, you just got to be strong. You just got to be faithful. You just got to keep on pushing forward and overcome all the suffering in your life. Friends, you realize that that is a false gospel that comes in a package of positive affirmations. I can do all things. And Jesus, he's just my cheerleader on the side. Jesus, or that God guy, he's just my water boy here to help me on my own journey. Wherever it is that I want to go, I can do all things. This mindset is actually so far from Peter's. If you look there in verse 3, Peter doesn't help them look in the mirror in the midst of their suffering. Who does he help them look towards? He helps them look to the heavens, to their all-powerful God who gives life to the, the, to the dead. Verse 3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. Clearly in Paul's mind, God and everything that he has done, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his great mercy, so his heart and posture towards sinners, and what has he done? Caused us to be born again, clearly to Peter, what secures safety for suffering Christians is God himself. How encouraging this must have been to the Christians who were facing persecution. Peter writes to them, look, you may be suffering at the hands of men who might have aimed for their death. But friends, you realize that at the hand of our mighty, almighty, and merciful God, he has already given us new life. There's an anchor for our hope. Persecutors may take life. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. This language of being born again, it speaks of new life in Jesus. Regeneration. The same term is used there in 123. Go ahead and look there. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, let me just explain here. The Bible says that all people, all people everywhere, are in need of this new life in Jesus, this regeneration, this being begotten again. Why is that? It's because we have already experienced a degeneration. And so we are dead, spiritually speaking. We are all spiritually dead in our sins. And in fact, we stand under the judgment of God. This is how that happened. The Bible says that God created everything in the universe, including us. And as as God is awesome and good, as we sung about earlier, he created us to be in a perfect, loving relationship with him. A relationship where there is trust and love and obedience. Where he is the loving king and we as his people, his created people, are underneath his good rule. But... In effort to rule ourselves, we have rejected God, the Bible says, and we've rejected his authority. We've rejected his rule. We've rejected his good law and his love. Instead, we choose to be our own kings and queens, as if that's even possible. And so we seek to live autonomously from him. As if he doesn't exist. I don't need you. This, friends, is the nature of sin. 
But as we know, if someone sets up their own throne, when really there is only one true king, what is that person guilty of? The person is guilty of treason. Earthly kingdoms know this. The penalty, therefore, is death. Well, so it is, so it is with God, who is king, who reigns over all the earthly and spiritual realms. And such treason, the Bible says, is punishable by death, even death in hell. Friends, you remember how we've been singing and how I mentioned that God is a loving God. We just read that God is a merciful God because of his great mercy. Here's where his mercy and love comes into play. According to his great mercy, God sees man's sin and he answers it with grace and mercy. Great mercy! In his tender compassion. In his tender compassion, not wanting any to perish, in fact, wanting all to come to repentance and faith, God sends Jesus Christ, his eternal son, to save. He sends him on a rescue mission. Though we had failed to fulfill God's righteous demands, according to God's righteous law, Jesus Christ himself, the God-man, fulfills those righteous demands on his people's behalf. The penalty that his people deserve for our unrighteousness, for having sinned against God, the death penalty, Christ himself takes it upon himself. And on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the wrath that we deserved. The third day he rose again, showing everyone, showing the universe that payment has now been paid. There is no death sentence that hangs over his people anymore, any longer. The king has pardoned us, forgiven us. Not only that, but he has decreed and declared that all, everyone who turns from their sin and calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Forgiven, declared righteous before his sight, adopted into his family, where we now know God the Father as loving Father and we have new life. We are reconciled to him. You see how through faith in Christ and his cross work, God turns his enemies into his family. And so salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. Friends, in a nutshell, that is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus. That is why this Jesus stuff is good news to us. And this salvation, friends, can be yours if you would turn from your sins and believe on him, submit to him. You will be saved not by any works of your own, but through Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection. Praise God, God is righteous and he judges as the sovereign one over all. But praise God, he is also gracious and merciful, steadfast in his love, in his tender mercies. For those who are in trouble on account of our own sin and rebellion, he draws near to them to help. Listen to how Paul the Apostle says, speaks about this in Ephesians 2 verse 4. God in his initiative, in his grace, and in his mercy, what does he do? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is amazing. If, again, if you're visiting with us and this is the first time you're hearing the gospel or you want to know more, I'm going to be standing at that door afterwards. If you want to know more about this gospel, come and talk to me or you can talk to the neighbor who brought you. But this stuff is amazing. This is what Christians live for. But now as we turn back to the letter and as we see how Peter writes of God's work and salvation, how does this, how does this actually work to bring about and encourage faithfulness for the Christian in the midst of suffering? Well, let me tell you. 
as we behold God and his love and character, as he is great in mercy, our faithfulness to Jesus is renewed. How is it that new life in Christ, how does it free the Christian and compel the Christian to lay down our earthly lives for Jesus, to persevere in suffering for Jesus Christ? Here's why. It's because what is gained in the gospel that is eternal life in Christ, what is gained in the gospel far outweighs all that can be lost for the gospel, that is our temporary earthly lives. What is gained in the gospel far outweighs all that can be lost for the gospel. Do you get that? I mean, once you realize that we are inheritors of God's kingdom, that when God signed those papers, so to speak, and as he put you, Christian, as a beneficiary of this eternal inheritance... We are enabled to endure suffering at the hands of our enemies and even expend our earthly lives loving our enemies for Christ's sake. Is this not the path that Jesus walked? He is, in fact, our example. If you look over at 1 Peter chapter 2, go over to 21. Go ahead and look there. He is our example, right? He, Peter doesn't write them, write to them saying, yeah, you better pity yourself. You better throw yourself with all this sorrow. There's no hope for you. No, he actually encourages them to, to continue. Why is that? You look there at 221. For to this, that is suffering at times, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that purpose statement, here's the reason, guys, so that you might follow in his steps. What did he do? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And you look over at 419 here. What, what is he calling us to do? 419, go ahead and turn over there. 419. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good. You see that there? He, he wants us to continue loving for Jesus, but then also loving our enemies for Jesus. You look over at 2.12, look over at 2.12. He, he tells them, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. We'll get into why he's actually calling them Gentiles, because they are Gentiles, actually. But he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. There he refers to those who don't believe. Honorable, so that, here's the purpose statement again, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds... And what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what he encourages the Christians to do there. He's aiming for their salvation. He's encouraging the Christians to continue so that they too, their own enemies would know Christ as Savior. And in suffering for Christ and suffering like Christ, what happens there? as we suffer at the hands of our enemies, as you suffer at the hands of your enemies, and then again, as we back up and just suffer in general, in suffering for Christ and like Christ, we testify to the fact that there is great gain in Jesus. 
great gain in Jesus. A gain worth more than anything that can be lost for Christ. You know how awesome that is? Friends, I know that some of you guys are suffering for your faith. And suffering in general because we live in the result of a fallen world. That's why suffering is in this world because the whole world is fallen. Friends, you realize that if you are a Christian and you are persevering in your suffering, what is it that you tell others who are watching you? The fact, Christian, that you are still here, even though you might be struggling, even though you might be struggling just to keep on going, to walk, forget running, I'm just walking, forget walking. Sometimes I'm just sitting there trying to face forward. The fact that you are still here tells everybody that Christ is worth it. You say in your suffering that there is great gain in Jesus. Why trust in God in the midst of suffering? Reason number one, he is our only hope. There is no hope outside of God and his gospel in Jesus Christ. Second reason, second reason to hope in God and suffering because Christian hope never dies. Because Christian hope never dies. You could put it this way. Christian hope always lives. Christian hope always lives. You look there at verses 3 and 4 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. Just imagine babies. What realm are they born into as they shoot out? They're born into, what does it say? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why is the Christian's hope living? It's not only because we have a new life in Jesus. It's because Jesus Christ still lives. Do you see that there? Imagine, friends, if Christ stayed dead. You remember how discouraged and fearful the disciples were after the crucifixion of Jesus, their Lord, their Savior, the one that they thought would come to deliver them. Imagine if Jesus Christ still remained in the grave. That discouragement and fear is what the Christian life would be like permanently if Christ were not raised from the dead. But thank God he did rise, and with him, our hopes as well. So imagine just being tethered, right? You got your carabiner. Some of you guys might be familiar with rock climbing. I'm not, but, uh, you know, I know what a carabiner is because sometimes I carry things, my, I carry my keys on it. But imagine latching that carabiner onto Jesus, Where's your hope going to be? Is your hope not going to be where Jesus goes? Friends, if you're, if you're a Christian, you are tethered to your Christ. And so, here's what I like, how I like to think about it is. And in fact, I think I mentioned it in my last sermon. As strong as Christ is, so goes our hope. As strong as Christ is, so goes your hope. This is beautiful theology, also found reflected in Romans chapter 6. There Paul speaks about what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes the Christian's union with Jesus in his death to sin, his death over sin, conquering sin, victory over sin. But then also in his resurrection as he got up from the dead. Just as Jesus died to sin, so the Christian dies to sin as he's united to Christ, tethered to Christ, where Christ goes, what Christ wins for himself, he wins for me. It's pictured in baptism, right? We go underneath the water just as Jesus went into the grave. And then just as Jesus rose to new life, so the Christian being tethered to Christ, as Christ rises from the grave, so we have risen as well. We have new spiritual life pictured up in coming out of the water. Christians, the new life Christ wins for himself, he wins for us. His victory over sin, his victory over death, his victory over Satan guarantees our victory over the power of sin, death, and Satan. That is hope because of Jesus, not on account of us. 
Worldly hope might say, I wish. If we're really bold, we say, I I will do the X, Y, and Z. The Christian's hope says, Jesus has done it. That's why I'm hopeful, because I'm tethered to him. I got nothing. I got no works. They're like dirty rags. I got no righteousness because I'm unrighteous. But Jesus is my everything. You think also about the union that happens, right? Death, resurrection. Think about the access that Christ has before the throne of grace. That's ours for the Christian in him. Where he is in heaven with the Father, we too will be because of him. You see that as strong as your Savior is, so goes your hope if we are tethered to him. This means that with Jesus, every discouragement, every moment of fear, and every seemingly hopeless situation is answered with the rock-solid hope of Christ. Thinking back to how fearful and discouraged and hopeless the disciples were after the crucifixion, right? it's like the darkness of the land that had happened when Christ was crucified. It's like that darkness had enveloped their hearts But can you just imagine, put yourself in their situation, can you just imagine how their fears fled in the appearing of the resurrected Jesus Christ, the God-man? That would be faith and hope renewed. Christ is risen just as he said he would. And so we therefore have hope. Christian, when you feel like your hope lays dead, God wants you to remember that Christ still lives. And with him, therefore, your hope. We see this played out in Paul the Apostle's life. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Just listen, or or you can turn there. Having suffered tremendously for the gospel. This is what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. How many of us feel like that today? Whether we're wrestling with our own sin whether we're suffering from persecution or suffering from the fallen world, broken bodies, illnesses, etc. We were so desperately burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's discouragement, right? He goes on. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. We despair of life itself so that we might depend on him who raises life. This is why Christians, even in persecution or the threat of losing our lives or suffering deeply, we Christians, yes, will grieve, but we, quote, grieve as those who have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4. Objections. You may say, oh no, you don't understand. I am suffering unjustly at the hands of evil men and I want vengeance now. The answer, Scripture's answer, your Lord lives and he is judge. And make no mistake, he will return to establish his righteousness to the ends of the earth. Therefore, 1 Peter 4.19 again says, we are enabled to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, while doing good. Another objection, but I'm facing the, the death sentence because of persecution or cancer or just hopelessness in general. Friends, what's your answer? Your Lord in getting up from the dead. Clo- what, did, what did he do? He clothed himself with the majesty of immortality and you will follow in his train. 
1 Corinthians 15. Another objection. I follow Jesus, but you don't understand. If I stand for him when my family ridicules Jesus Christ and then me, I fear that I'm going to lose my reputation. I'm going to get kicked out of the family. I'm going to get ostracized. What's the answer? God says, you are my child. And I have declared to the ends of the earth that you will inherit the kingdom of God and share both in my kingdom and in my glory, signed on the dotted line with the blood of my Savior, Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1. That's confidence that overwhelms all insecurities and all hopelessness that comes with hoping in the stuff of life. Hoping in the circumstances of no persecution, the circumstance of no suffering in general, or even fearing our earthly reputations being wiped away. We could go on. All of those things, if we are carabinered, if we are latched onto those things, what happens? We know exactly where that's going. We are latched on to the sinking ship. All of these things, our own strength, they all fail. But praise God, as we looked at and were encouraged about last week from Psalm 21, we know God is God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's God who knows your suffering. God who watches over his people. And so Peter here can say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, let me encourage you. Let me ask you. Why would you want to bank your hopes on earthly things or circumstances when according to here the next phrase, what has he done there? This brings us to the third reason to hope in God in the midst of suffering. What has he assigned to his people? An eternal inheritance. Third third reason why we should hope in God in the midst of suffering is because with Christ we have an incorruptible inheritance. An incorruptible inheritance. Look at verse 4. God has caused us to be born again, of course, because of his posture towards sinners. He, in his tender compassion, he helps them. He causes us to be born again to a living hope. That's the first thing we are born towards. The second thing we are born towards is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The language of inheritance shows up a lot in the Bible. Naturally, this language of inheritance, what does it do? It stirs up hope in something that's future, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, God raised us up, seated us with him, that is Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Of course, this inheritance is ultimately Christ himself and salvation in him. But thinking of how the suffering Christians likely heard Peter's words for the first time, it's amazing. He says that, look, you may have little here in this kingdom. But look there. According to God's purpose and plan, he has made you an inheritor of the kingdom of God in Christ, where Christ is king. Christians have a heavenly inheritance that is imperishable, that it is never destroyed. It is undefiled, that is, it is always pure. And it is unfading, that is, it never diminishes. This is inexhaustible riches in Christ. It's like God making it rain. Inexhaustible riches in Jesus Christ. Now, for many of us, maybe you yourself, 
maybe not all of us, but, or many of us, if not all of us, there will always be a temptation to put our hopes in earthly stuff, money, material things, earthly name, status, power, relationships. And then we depend on those things as if it were our salvation or that thing of ultimate value or lasting value. But friends, you realize that suffering is immensely clarifying. Suffering is immensely clarifying. Whether we choose to suffer for something or not reveals just how worthy we think that thing is. Choosing to suffer for something reveals the strength and glory of that thing, actually. It reveals our own loves for that thing, possibly. And so suffering shows us what we value, doesn't it? This is actually a wonderful byproduct of suffering. It's a grace of God, actually. When we stare disappointment in the face. Friends, when you stare disappointment in the face... Aren't we reminded again and again that this world is not our home? In that moment, right, as you hold that broken thing in your hands, the broken toy, the broken stock portfolio, which some of you guys know about this week, the broken marriage even, your broken bodies, and then you go on to suffer and weep. You realize that God is helping to wean us from all that fails us, so we would hope in him who never will. In those circumstances, faith is refined like gold in a fire, right? We're going to get to that in uh, the, 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 the next year as we have begun officially this First Peter series. And this refining is not always comfortable, but does God use it for our good? Absolutely. He helps us look to Christ again to see his tender mercies as he has caused us to be born again to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is Christ in his kingdom. Christian, as strong as our Christ is, so goes our hope. And with your living Savior, we have confidence and security looking to the final salvation with absolute certainty. This brings us to our fourth and final reason to trust in God in the midst of suffering. Point number four, because God will bring us to final salvation. Reason to trust in God in the midst of suffering, because God will bring us to final salvation. Verse five, he says there, we have been born to a living hope, to an inheritance, right? That's what the spheres in which we are born towards, living hope inheritance, and then he says, to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here, when he speaks of the, about this revelation of the last time, salvation ready to be revealed, he's talking about Christ's return and the final salvation that will, in fact, come. On this day, Christ will make his righteous rule made known to the full, where God rights all wrongs, where he judges the wicked, and where he gathers to himself his people to be with him forever. This is a huge theme in First Peter. I encourage you guys to just go ahead and read the whole letter this afternoon. That would be my encouragement to you guys. If you look there at one thirteen, look at how he speaks of this return of Jesus. In 
Nope, that's the wrong verse. Oh, no, it was the right verse. I was in the wrong chapter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, he says. Again, he's encouraging them to live out for Jesus. And being sober-minded, what does he say there? Set your hope fully on what? The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Interesting, he talks there about this arrival of grace. That's, that's the second coming. In, in the final salvation that Jesus brings to his people. In verse 5 then, this grace is what? Ready to be revealed in the last time. The salvation, this grace, is ready to be revealed in the last time. You think of John 14 here. Remember the tender mercies of Jesus who comes alongside those with compassion. Jesus in the upper room, he calms anxious hearts. He has told them that they are going to suffer. But he calms their anxious hearts. Knowing they will go through persecution and suffering, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, right? Sounds like inheritance language. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. That's your future hope, Christian. That one day when the heavens break open on this fallen world, in the clouds part, Christ himself will fulfill all that he has promised. I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. I get that in times of deep suffering and discouragement, we feel like, you know, again, we can't even keep it together. We can barely keep going. But thank the Lord that our hope, the Christian's hope, does not rest on us or our resolve at the end of the day or on our power. Did you notice how it is that we know we're going to make it to final salvation in verse 5? It is by God's power. No surprise. It's by God's mercy that he had spoke things into existence or his power that he spoke things into existence, he commanded, and the universe came to be. It is by God's sovereign mercy and grace that we are made alive. It is by God's sovereign power that Jesus got up from the dead in the resurrection, securing for us our living hope. It is because of the strength of God's power and his kingdom that we have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance So then no surprise, God himself is keeping the inheritance for us. Isn't that interesting? By God's power is being kept. It is being kept, not by you, by God. It is being kept passively. The one actively keeping is God. So naturally, by God's sovereign grace, he will, in fact, do what? Guard us. He will, the Bible says right there, look there. He will guard us by his power to receive what he has planned for us, promised for us, actively preserved for us. So you see there, as strong as God is, so goes our hope. He keeps, he reserves it for us, the eternal inheritance, and he guards us by his power so that we would get there. Christian, you are you suffering? You realize that your sovereign God 
wields his sovereignty, his power for you. If you're suffering on the count of unrighteousness, you realize that he wields his justice, righteousness for you. Do you feel like you're teetering, tottering? You're not really sure what's going to happen. You're battling your own sin. You feel this guilt that is overwhelming, the shame that wants to crush. Friend, do you realize that he wields his eternal, steadfast love and mercy for you? These are all of the themes that actually lead and undergird this letter. And that actually lead it if you look at the introduction there. Though Christians may suffer, we are to be reminded that God is God who has what set his love upon us. He has called us to be his people. This is all there in that word foreknowledge. You look there in verse 2, right? He writes to the church according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He knows. It's like adoption, right? He walks into the orphanage. He knows. He knows his people. He chooses them. He says, I'm going to set my love on you. That's steadfast love. Covenant love, covenant-keeping love, never giving up love, always fulfilling love, as one children's Bible describes it. This is God making his covenant promises all by a sovereign grace. So you might feel like you're teetering on the edge, wrestling with your own sin. But friends, you are foreknown. In other words, he has covenanted with you. You look there, not only does he write this letter in the, uh, to the Christians according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it is written in sanctification of the Spirit, or they are in sanctification of the Spirit. That is, when Christians are saved, they are set apart for God's purposes. If you're suffering for God's purposes, for Jesus and his name to be made known to the end of the world, look what he says here. The world may despise Christians for those purposes, but our Lord can be trusted. We know he is good, and his good purpose undergirds our life. It sets us apart in sanctification for the Spirit. He sets us apart. Sanctification, in other ways, is spoken of a process of growing in holiness. Here it's talking about being set apart for God's good, for his namesake, that we would declare his glories to the ends of the earth. It is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit and for sprinkling with his blood. Another phrase for salvation that is accomplished by our Savior's blood. And friends, that same salvation that you know personally if you are a Christian, that freedom, that grace, that love and peace in Jesus, we can continue steadfast for Jesus so that others, even our own persecutors, might one day come to know Christ as well. With the Lord over all having your back, all he calls you to do is trust and obey. Why would we, why would you look anywhere else for hope? God is our only hope. In Christ, our hope always lives. In Christ, we have what truly lasts. And if he has promised to bring us to final salvation, he will surely do it. No wonder all that's left to do is believe or have faith. Because God is our marvelous, covenant-keeping God, full of grace and great mercy. No wonder Peter says that these Christians rejoiced in trial. There is so much to rejoice in. And in looking to Christ, we can rejoice as well, whether we be in South Asia, in India, or in Southern California. Blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. According to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, God, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we would behold the beauties of the King. We pray, God, that you would capture our hearts so that in the midst of temptations and trials and suffering or persecutions, Lord, we would be so latched to Jesus Christ by the Spirit As we behold the beauties of the King, we would so delight in walking the same path that Jesus walked, not reviling when he was reviled, not attacking when he was attacked, but instead just faithfully continuing and entrusting ourselves to you while doing good for your glory and for the sake of your name to the ends of the earth. Lord, you know that our hearts... In many times, Lord, they are weak, and so we confess our sins to you. We confess that oftentimes we desire to shepherd ourselves, and we don't want you to shepherd us. Lord, we confess these things. We ask you to forgive us. You know that our hearts are weak, which is why we need the Spirit of Jesus. We pray, God, that you would enable Evergreen to persevere in faith, that you would strengthen us, that you would enlarge in our hearts so that they would be like Jesus's, And that always before us you would keep Christ and the living hope that we have on account of the resurrection from the dead. In your name we pray. Amen.